today I'm going to talk about interpreting, primarily interpreting in international courts, but not only in international courts. Judges and lawyers spend a great amount of their time trying to find the meaning of texts, the meaning of legal documents. It might be a contract, it might be a will, it might be a conveyancing document, it might be a statute, a piece of legislation, it might be a constitution, it might be a treaty. So that's a large part of the work of, of lawyers, international and national. And international lawyers, international courts too, can be concerned with uh, national, <coughs> treat, national documents of one kind or another, with statutes, for instance, that are relevant to boundaries, colonial boundaries, or statutes that are, and case law that is relevant to the exhaustion of domestic remedies or law, national law that concerns uh, the status of corporations. So a lot of time looking at um, the meaning of texts. That's my first point. The second point is that there can be a danger if you assume that one size will fit all, that you can carry over from one area into another uh, the approach to interpretation, the rules of interpretation. There's a great statement by um, a leading American constitutional lawyer, Paul Freund, to the effect that if you interpret a, la a, a constitution as if it were a last will and testament, it might well become one. So beware then of a narrow interpretation of a constitution. You should see it, uh, in terms of another American proposition, as stating rule principles for an expanding future principles for an expanding future, not rules for the passing hour. Or you might say, in, in the words of uh, a Canadian court, um, a Canadian judge, that uh, a constitution is a living tree. So the rules that might apply, say, to a will, uh, might not well may not be applicable, may not make sense for a constitution. But there may well be a carryover. Now, in addition to those two points, just to make a third point about uh, international law and international practice, there's a great article <clears throat> many years ago by um, Arnold McNair, who was later to become a judge and president of both the uh, International Court of Justice and the European Court of Human Rights. And he says, if you look at national law, uh, then you'll find that there are those many different areas of law, bodies of law. There's constitutional law to look after constitutional matters. There's conveyancing law, land law to look after those kinds of matters. There's uh, charters and corporate documents to look after corporations. Uh, the, there is uh, another body of law relating to the interpretation of constitutions and so on. Uh, and he says, too often there's a, an assumption by international lawyers that one size will fit all. So you've got to be careful, um, both McNair says and as Freund had said, not to carry rules from one area to another. But having said that, you may well find that there is a lot of commonality. Uh, to, to come to uh, a further question, the commonality might be caught in a document which sets out the rules for interpretation, the ways of going about interpreting a document. And you find that, for instance, notably in the international law area, in Articles 31 to 33 of the Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties. There you find, uh, in, in the first article, the general rule. 
and that's deliberately a singular, the general rule. Secondly, you find supplementary methods of finding meaning. And thirdly, there is a provision about multilingual texts, which is very important in the international community. Um, similarly, you'll find in national legal systems rules about, legislated rules about how to interpret contracts and how to interpret legislation. Now there's an interesting difference here between the civil law world and the common law world. The civil codes, from the Napoleonic Code on, maybe earlier, I'm not sure, have provided rules for interpreting um, contracts, but not on the whole interpreting legislation. By contrast, in the common law world, you'll find quite a lot of interpretation acts um, indicating to judges how they are to interpret statutes, but not contracts. So you get that interesting diversion, and obviously there is a choice about whether to write a set of rules by statute and the statute about how to interpret a treaty or a, or, a, or a statute or legislation. And you find different choices being made, and if you go back to the 1950s and 60s and the debates in the Institute of International Law and then in the International Law Commission, you'll find uh, different views being expressed w about whether it made sense, whether it was really practical to try to write down the rules about the interpretation of treaties. Well, as you know, uh, they were written down, they were written down in Articles 31 to 33. Now let me pick out a few points about um, those provisions before I talk about um, some cases uh, in, in which <coughs> these uh, approaches were used or not used depending on the timing of the case uh, very often. The, the first point that is interesting in looking at the legislation provisions I know relating to interpreting legislation and looking at the Vienna Convention is that they all say look at the words, look at the text, look at the ordinary meaning of the text, look at that in context and look at the purpose. So not just the text but also the context and the purpose. And you may wonder about why you have those additional pieces, the context and the purpose. Well, let me give a very simple example. All around the world, or in parts of the world in which I've been driving, which is certainly not all around the world, but in many parts of the world when you're driving, you will come to a sign that has in it the letters STOP, quite often um, encircled in red or within a red triangle. You find that in French um, uh, towns, for instance. Now that means, obviously, stop. Um, but it doesn't mean only stop. If people stopped and nothing else happened, then the world would come to an end, presumably, or everyone would have to survive on what they happened to have in their car or their truck that day. It means stop, look around, and if the road is clear, you can move on. So that's the context. The purpose is a purpose of safety. So you get those three elements included. Now, you'll get disputes about how they're to be balanced, questions about how they're to be balanced. Also questions about whether you look at the drafting history at uh, the travail preparatoire and whether you look at uh, subsequent practice. And, and if you look again at Articles 31 and 32, you'll find that um, Article 32 says in terms of the supplementary means, you can come to the supplementary means um, if uh, the reading that you've got from the 
ordinary or normal meaning of, of the text is uh, unclear, um, unreasonable, absurd, or if you want to confirm the meaning that you've already reached, you can look at this additional material at the, uh, at, at the um, drafting history. Now what happens if you read the uh, drafting history and finds it, find it contradicts what you've um, tentatively reached, the meaning that you've tentatively reached? Well, it doesn't happen that often and probably it doesn't happen that often because courts are given this material, judges are given this drafting material along with everything else and it's not, as, not in terms of Article 32 that you come to this material only after you've struggled with the ordinary or normal meaning or natural meaning of the words. Um, let me give an example from my earliest um, judging experience of that. Uh, it, it is a case with an international, an important inter international element. I was a judge in the Western Samoan Court of Appeal, this is uh, well over 30 years ago, uh, and the question was whether the Samoan Constitution required universal suffrage. The electoral law of the time said only the Matai, only the chiefs could vote, and only they could be um, candidates, obviously, for election. The Constitution um, had a, in it a general guarantee of equality before the law. That had been added late in the drafting of the Constitution um, at the, on the proposal of the Trusteeship Council. Western Samoa uh, had earlier been a German colony, then a mandated territory under uh, the League of Nations, and then a trust territory, and New Zealand was the administering um, authority, the administering power. Uh, so the, this uh, Bill of Rights was added. It was based on the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. This is the late 50s, before the covenants, covenants had been fully developed, based in part as well on Caribbean constitutions. So just this very general proposition about equality before the law, but nothing at all about electoral rights in the Bill of Rights. So what did the Constitution require? Well, I actually knew that this issue of universal suffrage had been debated at great length 20 years earlier between um, the UN and the Samoan people, and I knew it had been debated as well in Samoa, and I knew it had been the subject of an extensive debate in the Constitutional Conference that adopted the Samoan Constitution, and I knew that that, had, uh, that Constitution had been adopted by universal suffrage with UN um, representatives observing the election, elect, uh, the, first of all that um, referendum and then sub subsequent elections. So I knew that the Samoan people had addressed this matter at great length and had rejected the urgings of the Trusteeship Council. Now, when the case came to be argued, what was I to do with that knowledge? And what were my two colleagues, who were also New Zealanders, to do with that knowledge? Their knowledge was not as long, but they had read um, relevant historical accounts. Well, if you read the judgment in that case, you'll find that the court looks at the uh, words, it looks at the wider context, it takes account of quite a range of material, and then at the end it says, oh, and by the way, the drafting history confirms what we've said. Um, so that was a case, happily, of confirmation. Uh, but, but it is interesting that the court also said, um, were the uh, drafting history to be contrary to the uh, plain meaning of the text read in context by reference to its purpose, then 
the drafting history would be put to one side. So the court there was saying, we are confined by the text, but not to the text. So we can go beyond the text, but not too far. Um, now that, that's a spectacular example of where the drafting history is useful. Uh, but I should say on the basis of a lot of experience over the last 30 years that uh, it ain't necessarily so. It's really the case that uh, the drafting history uh, will be helpful in, in the way that it spectacularly was there. The court said there were cogent reasons for using it. Uh, and and <clears throat> we were doing that, well I knew about the Vienna Convention, it didn't get mentioned in the um, judgment, but we were doing it at a time when uh, courts in some parts of the common law world, uh, the United States was different, but courts were still wondering whether they should look at Hansard, they should look at parliamentary debates or not. They hadn't clearly made up their mind. Um, so we, we were being careful uh, not, not to get in the way of developments of the law, say, in New Zealand or Australia or Canada or, or <coughs> the United Kingdom um, in, in that Samoan context. <coughs> now, let me come back to another point or two about the wording of Article 31. One point that was much debated through the 50s and 60s was the role of intention. Should intention be referred to? And if you look at a lot of interpretation judgments, you'll find judges frequently referring to the intention of the parties, the intention of the legislature. Well, back in the 50s and 60s, the um, Institute of International Law members and the International Law Commission said, no, we're not going to refer to intention. And you'll find that as well in the interpretation statutes that I mentioned, the common law interpretation statutes uh, that I recalled. And why is that so? Well, one, one is that uh, you're looking at the objective text. You're looking at the meaning of the manifestation of the intention, if you like. You're not trying to go back into the intention. A second reason is that if you're too stuck with the intention, you may find that you're, you're subjecting the text to the dead hand of the past. You won't let it live. You won't let it move on to deal with new situations. And, and a third reason is that to try to find intention sometimes is to look for a fiction. There was an Australian Attorney General and Foreign, Foreign Minister of the 1980s who in the context of Australian debates about this referred to um, the intention of the legislature as whimsical nonsense. I can't get his Australian accent right, but whimsical nonsense, and I think there's quite a lot in that. I mean, sometimes it will be the case that the legislatures, the legislators, the parties have not even thought about the issue. Um, in other cases they may have thought about it but um, decided it was too hard or, or they couldn't agree and so they just left the text murky. But plainly, if, if you just stay with the original meaning with what was known at the time, then the First Amendment to the United States Constitution which provides for freedom of expression would not ever apply to emails or to radio or to fax or to television or to all the other amazing developments that not even those um, brilliant individuals who wrote that text uh, could have anticipated in any concrete terms. So intention then gets less left out. Now, um, the, quite, there's quite a bit more that could be said about the drafting of those documents, but let me take some cases 
um, to see just um, how helpful uh, these documents can be, these guides can be, uh, these approaches can be, um, because <coughs> it is the case that even with this assistance you can have disagreements about what a text means. There's a nice line by the International Law Commission in its work on this that uh, interpreting is, is as much a craft as it is a science. Now I think it's a bit more of a science now because of the structure that's provided by the uh, Vienna Convention and, and is also provided in national uh, legis legislative uh, systems and legislative directions to the same effect. I've certainly found that in the time that I've been a judge uh, in, in, national, in the national jurisdiction in New Zealand and in a few other places and as a judge in The Hague, that it does help structure argument from counsel, it does help structure your own thinking and your own writing about um, this matter. But to be concrete, I, I take, take um, four cases, three of them um, international, the fourth one a national decision that uh, has uh, international law at its core. The first, <coughs> first case is about an air transport agreement. It's an air transport agreement between um, Italy and uh, uh, the United States back in 1948. Now the tribunal gave its decision in 1965, so that's before the Vienna Convention is adopted, but they did have the advantage of the debates within the International, the Institute of International Law, uh, in which as I said the idea of um, intention was rejected, uh, where a lot of emphasis was placed on looking at the text and looking at it in context. Now the, the, the case is one that requires close reading of the treaty documents and indeed of the reasoning uh, and you'll find it in the UN reports of international arbitral awards, one of the many products of the uh, codification division of the United Nations Secretariat um, in which I was very honoured and privileged to serve a very long while ago so it's uh, great being back and contributing more to the uh, codification division's work. <coughs> Now the case is about whether the word and can mean or. A in, in, in uh, Italian could mean o. I, I think that's, uh, they're the appropriate words. Uh, because the air transport agreement said that carriers named by the two sides, by the United States or Italy, could carry passengers, comma, goods and mail. Now what the uh, United States carriers wanted to do, it was Pan Am way back then, was to have an all-cargo um, flight every week or twice a week or whatever it was uh, from one designated port point in the United States, uh, maybe through intermediate points to points in Italy. Uh, no said um, <coughs> Italy, uh, when it says and it means and, and that means you've got to carry passengers and goods and mail. Uh, no said uh, the United States, it means we can carry all three or we can carry two of them or we can carry just one of them, an all cargo uh, plane for instance. <clears throat> and that's what the tribunal decided with the Italian member of the tribunal dissenting. Now as I say you need to read the judgment carefully um, to, to get, get this right, but the tribunal said We've got to look at the plain, ordinary, natural meaning of the, the words, and they said, and means and, it doesn't usually mean or. Um, 
But they said, you've got to look at it in context. And what was the context? Well, they said uh, part of the context is the Chicago Convention on International Civil Aviation, prepared in 1944, setting up the International Civil Aviation Organization, providing the basic rules for, for international aviation, international civil aviation. Moreover, <coughs> the context is provided by the Bermuda Agreement, the initial agreement between the United States and the United Kingdom. That was in many ways the model for uh, international air transport agreements for a number of years. <coughs> now the Italian member said that's too wide, you can't read that widely. But then the tribunal said in terms of the ordinary or natural meaning, the provision did not impose an obligation. It provided a, a right uh, to the carrier, the designated carrier, and it could carry all three or two or just simply one. Um, a requirement would, uh, a requirement uh, requiring all three would be absurd. It would be absurd to introduce into an agreement a provision to the effect that uh, an aircraft which was not carrying passengers as well as cargo and mail could not disembark what it was carrying and so on. And, and it as well referred to the objective, or if you like, the purpose of the agreement. It was an agreement which was designed um, in a situation where the parties were conscious of never-ending technical advances and the possibilities of future evolution. And as well, they said, the subsequent practice of the parties confirmed this meaning, and that was again a point on which the Italian nominee to this tribunal disagreed, on which he dissented. So here you find a case which is really interesting, I think, in a whole lot of ways. Um, it's interesting because it, it um, requires you to look carefully at the words, the text, uh, the second is that the interpreter went outside the text to the context and, and it also shows, to go back to the expression, that uh, interpretation is as much, much an art as it is a science. Um, and, and fourth point is that here you see um, a tribunal aware of the fact that there are technological developments which they know about um, which are on foot. Now. To go to a second case, um, what about um, developments that you just can't anticipate? Um, we had a case uh, a few years back, a dispute between uh, Costa Rica and Nicaragua, navigational rights case in the International Court, and there we had a treaty from 1858. The treaty um, established the boundary between those two countries, and part of the boundary was provided by the right bank of the uh, San Juan River that flows all the way down from Lake Nicaragua into the Caribbean Sea. Now that, uh, the right bank is uh, Costa Rica's boundary, or their, their shared boundary. The river therefore is a Nicaraguan river. They're sovereign over that river. They have, according to the, the Spanish text, well, Latin words in the Spanish text, they have imperium and dominium over this river. They have sovereign rights over this river. So they can regulate its use. But the um, Costa Ricans have the right of free transit for purposes of commerce, which we had to interpret that phrase. 
I'm not going to go into that interpretation issue. You can read that in the text of the judgment. I just want to pick up one aspect of the power of regulation. The court said that um, Nicaragua is the sovereign, plainly can regulate the use of the river, but it uh, regulates the use subject to the right of the Costa Ricans of uh, free transit on that river, free navigation on that river. Can they regulate for the purpose, say, of environmental protection? Yes, said the court. Now, this is different from the uh, case I've just mentioned, the air transport case, because there all cargo um, planes were anticipated, were known about at that time. Now, if you'd ask people in 1858 about environmental protection, environmental regulation, I'm pretty sure they said what it, they would have said, what are you talking about? Um, you know, the worldwide concern with environmental issues is really quite recent, or quite recent in terms of the way I see time, I suppose. Uh, the the um, Silent Spring, the book by Rachel Carson that gave rise to great concerns about uh, the environment, is early 1960s. The first Stockholm conference, the first major international conference on the environment is 1972. We're here talking about 1858. And, and what the court said was, over the course of the century and a half since the 1858 treaty was concluded the interests which are to be protected through regulation in the public interest may well have changed in ways that could never have been anticipated by the parties at the time. Protecting the environment is a notable example. So there you see um, a court being willing to read a text in the light of major subsequent developments uh, and not looking back to an orig original intent or to some narrow um, version um, of uh, what the text might have meant way back then. And you find that to come to a third case in the Namibia opinion of 1971. In that, the court is concerned with the undertakings of South Africa in, in after the establishment of the mandate system back in 1920. Um, it's undertaking in terms of a sacred trust. And, and the court said that the developments of the subsequent 50 years had to be taken into account. Developments in respect of self-determination and independence and racial equality and so on. And, and so there you find the court um, reading that very open-ended text, that very um, broad statement in a way that takes account of evolution. There's another interesting aspect of that case as well, an aspect that relates to a rule. Um, the Charter of the United Nations provides in Article 27, Paragraph 3, that for decisions of the uh, Security Council to be adopted, um, let me get the words exactly right, uh, on matters other than procedural ones, they're to be made by an affirmative vote of nine members, including the concurring votes of the permanent members. The concurring votes of the permanent members. Now what happens if a concurring, if, if a permanent member abstains. That doesn't sound like a concurring vote on one view of the word concurring. It doesn't sound like affirmative, including the concurring votes. But no, said the court, the practice of the uh, permanent members, the practice of other members of the Security Council, the practice of the membership generally of the UN um, over the years since 1945 up to 1971, 
showed that uh, <clears throat> that abstention did not prevent the resolution being adopted. That was the meaning that was now to be given to the text. That was subsequent practice being taken into account uh, in interpreting what appeared to be a, a pretty tight rule. So, so there you get um, uh, a, a clear ruling um, in respect of subsequent practice. Now, subsequent practice is dealt with variously in various courts and uh, tribunals in different areas of law, but there uh, you find the kind of thing that's provided for in Article 31 of the uh, Vienna Convention. Now, my last um, case uh, is a, a case, as I indicated, from a national court, but it, it's about an international law matter. It's a decision of the Supreme Court of Canada relating to a person who had refugee status or who was claiming refugee status. He qualified in all respects except that there was a question whether he was guilty of acts contrary to the purposes and principles of the United Nations. Very wide language. He was a major drug dealer, a major drug trafficker. Uh, was he um, guilty of offences against the purposes and principles of the United Nations? You'll find two great judgments, uh, majority saying no he wasn't, the dissent saying yes he was. The majority said that the lower court in finding against him um, had um, failed uh, to look at the adequately at the objects and purposes of the treaty and had failed to give proper weight to the drafting history, to the travaux préparatoire. They said we're applying the Vienna Convention uh, and there is no indication in international law that drug trafficking on any scale is to be considered contrary to the purposes and principles of the UN. So he kept, I may have got this wrong a moment ago, um, he, um, he kept his uh, refugee status. He didn't lose it because of uh, his, um, these serious drug offences in which he had been involved. Uh, now if you go to the dissenters, you'll find them um, providing a really interesting account of the way in which the world community has dealt over the years with drugs, how it's become more and more and more of a concern. And indeed, if you think back to the beginning of the International Criminal Court, it was concern, wasn't it, from the Caribbean in respect of drug dealing that led to the initial work on an International Criminal Court, even if uh, drug dealing is not one of the crimes um, provided for in the Rome Statute for the ICC. But um, the the dissenters then laid out all of that material and, and they said, and uh, let me quote a couple of <coughs> sentences from what they did say, it cannot be the case that the interpretation of an exclusion must forever be restricted. As international law develops, the content of a phrase such as acts contrary to the purposes and principles of the UN must be capable of development. International law is developing continuously and they then made a cautionary comment about using the travo. We don't want the dead hand of the past. They didn't quite put it in those terms. So you find the minority then being willing to look more widely uh, at um, material in terms of giving content to the um, terms of uh, the Refugee Convention uh, definition. Well, I should try to come to some conclusions. Uh, first of all, 
the text is critical. Um, I've made the comment a couple of times, I think that uh, the interpreter is confined, is not confined to it, but certainly in the end is confined by it, as uh, that Western Samoan Court of Appeal said uh, so many years ago. Um, so there is that, uh, there is that constraint. Um, in, in some um, parts of the world at various times, people have been taught, um, I certainly was, three rules of statutory interpretation. Um, now, there's a great version of this uh, by a great American uh, lawyer who was a law professor and later a judge on the Supreme Court, Felix Frankfurter, and I, I'd like to adapt his three rules of interpretation. I think they're very wise advice. The three, his three rules were, adapting them for my current purpose, read the treaty, read the treaty, read the treaty. So <laughs> make sure you actually look at the words that are in front of you, but you're not you're not limited to that. Um, you can go, in terms of my second point, to the, to the context and the purpose. You're not confined um, to the text, even if you're confined um, by it. And you may have to look, for instance, at relevant rules of international law, as is provided for in Article 31, paragraph 3, subparagraph C of the Vienna Convention. That's the subject of a very interesting lecture in this series by my compatriot um, Campbell McLaughlin. And third, the um, drafting history may be relevant, it may even be cogent, um, as appeared um, in that very first case I mentioned. But as I also said back then when I was talking about that case, um, it will very often not be the case. I've looked at an awful lot of drafting history in my time and uh, it very often doesn't help, and there may be advantage at times in uh, presenting uh, that material um, as part of the context, really, rather than uh, as part of the uh, drafting history. Now, subsequent practice, fourth, can help, as appears in that Namibia case, and sometimes uh, drafting practice um, has been influential, subsequent practice, rather, has been influential. It's interesting in that context to recall that the only provision in the ILC draft uh, on the, the Law of Treaties that was not adopted was a provision uh, which enabled subsequent practice to amend a text. That was rejected. That was thought to be dangerous by many states um, appearing, uh, participating in the Vienna Conference. And yet that might be the reality quite often, mightn't it, that a text that was settled a long while ago is adapted by practice, but in terms of the current doctrine at least, the way in which that is handled, as in the Namibia concurring um, votes business, um, as in that case is to say this is subsequent practice indicating the, the meaning of the text rather than subsequent practice amending it. But um, thinking of that case and thinking of the San Juan case, thinking of both aspects of the Namibia case, uh, thinking of the dissenters in the Canadian case. Um, in all of those you see uh, the, the need um, to bear in mind the McNair proposition that different treaties may require different treatment because in those cases there is a need to think about this treaty as something that is going to last for a good while. It is stating principles for an expanding future. It's not stating rules for the passing hour and you could see the um, air transport agreement as being something of that kind. Because I should have made the point in respect of the 
air transport agreement that it provided for termination by one party or the other by the giving of 12 months notice and it provided for unilateral and agreed modifications to the schedule. So it was something that was drafted with an eye to pretty close amendment over, uh, over fairly short periods of time. And then finally, um, I, th I think you may have seen from these cases and you may see from your wider reading that uh, there is um, somewhat more science now than there was, somewhat less craft, um, but it is a matter f for you and your future professional activities to be careful of the range of different matters that um, are the subject of treaties uh, and, and the need to be sensitive to those different functions and those different purposes and to the um, obligation of good lawyers to look carefully at uh, the different elements that go into the business of trying to find the meeting of a text. Um, and as I said right at the beginning, uh, you will find through your professional lives that when you're not dealing with facts, trying to work out what the facts are, you will very often be trying to work out what does this text mean, why couldn't the drafters have made it clearer, but your task then is to try, and defi try to find out what it does actually mean in the current context. Thank you.